The U.S. was built on debate. From political differences to fighting for justice in a courtroom, we use our voices to make the case for our side. So when someone resorts to murder to make their point, it's a pretty shocking move. And today's countdown has all the proof. This list will have you stunned, but number one especially will immerse you in two of the most chaotic hours in U.S. political history. Hey, all you weirdos. Welcome to Crime Countdown, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Ash. And I'm Elena. Every week, we'll highlight 10 fascinating stories of history's most engaging and unsettling crimes, all picked by the Parcast Research Gods. This episode, we're counting down the top 10 most shocking U.S. political murders. The thing for me, at least, that's like so shocking when it comes to political murders is the fact that we kind of look at politicians as people who are supposed to keep us safe, like to some degree. We try. We try. <laughs> so when they get murdered, it kind of just leaves you feeling like very unsettled and very nervous. Yeah, that's exactly it. You said it exactly. We know they're people or they're supposed to be people. <laughs> they claim to be people, but we also elect them into office to basically speak and advocate for us. At least that's what we're hoping. Yeah. When one of them's taken, you know, by murder, which is always shocking, it's really jarring because no matter what, it's going to throw the whole system into chaos, at Mm -hmm. least just a little bit for even just a moment. I mean, politics is far from perfect, but we always hope they can at least appear to be working for us. And they give off this air of being kind of slightly untouchable. And when somebody's murdered... You're like, what do we do now? What happens? Yeah, exactly. Because they do. They give off this sense of like untouchable. Totally. Yeah. Which might feel weird now going through this particular list because it shows us that no one is untouchable. Like not even these elected officials. I have number one and it is a case that rocks the world still to this day with so many unanswered questions and just like mystery surrounding it. Ooh, I'm intrigued and I might know what it is, but (laughs) there's also, I would say at least two actually that I'm waiting for that were not on my side. So I'm hoping at least one of those is what you're talking about. Not making any promises, but... You don't have to. This isn't politics. You don't want to make promises you can't keep. Exactly. (laughs) Well, I do have five of the most shocking U.S. political murders, and so does Elena. But neither of us knows who will be on the other one's list. Let's start the countdown. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad, too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. 10. 
I'll start us off with number 10, the assassination of United States federal judge John Wood. It's rare to hear about the assassination of a judge, which is a good thing that we don't hear about it often. Good thing, for sure. Judge Wood was the first federal judge to be assassinated in the 20th century back in 1979, and his killer is actually the estranged father of a well-known actor. San Antonio, Texas, U.S. District Judge John H. Wood Jr. was known for being a tough judge, especially towards drug traffickers. They called him Maximum John because of the punishments he handed down. What a nickname. Maximum John. Hey, Maximum John. That just has like so many different just like ways of looking at that. that Morning Maximum. That I'm just going to move right on past. In May 1979, Judge Wood was set to preside over the trial for drug trafficker Jimmy Shagra. Jimmy was known as the marijuana kingpin in the West back in the 70s with connections to Colombia and Mexico. Ooh. Facing a trial that could end with a tough sentence from Judge Wood, Jimmy hired a hitman for $250,000 to assassinate the judge. That is a bad way of getting out of that. Definitely. That hitman was Charles Harrelson, the estranged father of actor Woody Harrelson. Whoa. Drop that right there. I was like, who is this going to be that's willing to assassinate a judge? Yeah. It was shocking when I read it. Yeah. I knew there was something there with Woody Harrelson's estranged father. Like, I had read certain things Mm -hmm. that mentioned it, but I had no idea it was this. That's crazy. Now, May 29th, 1979, Charles shot and killed Judge Wood in an Alamo Heights neighborhood. The FBI spent thousands of man hours and more than $11 million to find Charles Harrelson. In 1982, Harrelson was finally convicted and got two life sentences. Jimmy Shagra was acquitted in the death of Judge Wood. Interesting. Wow. How? Don't know. Woody Harrelson said his dad left his mom when he was eight years old and they didn't have a relationship, but they sort of built one while he was in prison. Interesting. Yeah. It took that to reunite them. I guess so. He can't go anywhere now. So True. In 2007, Charles Harrelson was in his late 60s when he died in a Colorado prison. Nine. At number nine is newspaper editor Walter Liggett. Walter was a vocal critic of the Minnesota governor back in the 1930s. The governor and his connections to the mob have been blamed for Walter's death, mostly by Walter's wife. But whoever is responsible, it's just terrifying the lengths people go to silence journalists like him. Walter Liggett ran a small newspaper, the Midwest American, in Minneapolis back in the 1930s. Walter often wrote about Governor Floyd B. Olson, and on December 9, 1935, Walter's next issue of the paper would include a list of 12 reasons to impeach Olson. Walter and his wife Edith were running some errands that day and had picked up their 10-year-old daughter. They were parked in the alleyway next to their home, just about to carry groceries inside, when a car came speeding down the alley. The passenger in that car then pointed a Thompson submachine gun at Walter, shot and killed him. Like, he's just in about to- In front of his family. And his 10-year-old daughter, he's just about to carry groceries into the home and this happens. That's horrible. Edith told the police that she had seen the face of the shooter and could identify him, but she also was heard talking on the phone to her mother saying, Governor Olson's gang got Walter, mother. Ooh. Like, sad. Governor Olson had been known to be close to local gangsters, especially Kid Can, who's been called Minnesota's most notorious mobster. Uh Uh-oh. 
Kid Can told the grand jury he had nothing to do with it, and he recounted his whereabouts and actions that night, which, of course, everyone he mentioned as alibis confirmed the story. Of course. Uh, duh. Why wouldn't they? Edith took the stand and publicly blamed Governor Olson. Like, what an icon. She just was like, yep. She was That's like, it. I know he has something to do with it. Now, if it was Kid Can, allegedly on behalf of Governor Olson, they got away with it because Kid Can was acquitted. Governor Olson died of pancreatic cancer eight months later on August 22, 1936, at 44 years old. He's still seen as a progressive hero who died young and tragically in Minnesota. Kid Can ended up in Florida and died a wealthy man in 1981. Ugh. Eight. Number eight on our countdown of this most shocking U.S. political murders is former Congressman Allard Lowenstein. The murder of Al Lowenstein is sad on both fronts. It's a tragic loss of a life and a politician that was extremely influential. And then you have his killer, who was not only a protege of the congressman, but suffered from some severe mental health issues. Al Lowenstein is really known for the Dump Johnson movement, where he led the push to get Lyndon B. Johnson out of the White House. He's been described as having, quote, helped shape a decade of civil rights and anti-war activism. So he's a pretty influential guy. I would say so. The congressman's influence caught the attention of Dennis Sweeney when he was a student at Stanford. The congressman recruited Dennis in 1964 for civil rights work in Mississippi. During their time working together, the congressman told friends he was worried about Dennis's mental health. And at one point, Dennis told the congressman he was having all of his teeth removed because the CIA had planted a transmitter in them. What? Dennis also believed Al Lowenstein was after him and his family. That's like really sad. This is very sad. So it seems like the congressman's concerns were pretty valid. Unfortunately, Dennis didn't get treatment before March 1980. That's when he walked into the then-former New York congressman's office and shot him. Dennis then walked out of the office, set his gun down on a secretary's desk, lit a cigarette, sat down, and just waited for police. Wow. That's really, like, so spooky and ominous. It's just, I was just going to say, it's, like, very haunting. The casualness of it all. Mm-hmm. Dennis Sweeney was charged with second-degree murder and possession of a deadly weapon. Police said Dennis reiterated the belief that he thought Al Lowenstein was after his family. He said the pressure caused his father to have a fatal heart attack. Of course, it wasn't true the congressman was doing any of that. Like, no. this was not true. But it's really sad that this man believed this. It is. Dennis was soon diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. He was found not guilty by reason of insanity and sent to a state mental hospital. Well, that's good. I hope he like was able to get the yeah. help he needed. In 2000, after more than 15 years of tracking Dennis's progress, a judge at the state Supreme Court in Manhattan ordered a conditional release that ended Dennis's need to stay overnight at the mental hospital. It's reminiscent of the John Hinckley Jr. case. That's exactly what I was thinking about Mm -hmm. when I was reading it. So was I. Where you see them get treatments and reacclimated to society, but not without criticism. There's always going to be something. Of course. Seven. At number seven this week is the murder of reporter Don Bowles. 
As a reporter for the Arizona Republic in 1969, Don started investigating the state's dog racing industry, specifically the Funk family, who owned the racetracks throughout Arizona. His investigation caught the attention of a congressman, but also some shady characters. During his investigation, Don discovered that the Funk shared control of the tracks with a company called M-Price, which was suspected of having ties to organized crime. Being a good reporter, Don had a juicy story and wrote it up, and the story got the attention of Arizona Congressman Sam Steiger. The Funks then decided to fight back and asked an old friend and employee, George Johnson, to dig into both Don and the congressman. This is so messy. It truly is. Whenever dog racing is involved, I feel like it just gets messy real fast. Yeah, it definitely does. Now, meanwhile, Congressman Steiger used his position to get the story out there. He even testified in front of racing officials about the Funks' ties to Emprise and Emprise's possible ties to organized crime. Now, the Funks were convinced the two of them were being motivated by money and were being paid to go after their family and get the racetracks shut down. Now, none of that was true at all. After digging around and also coming to the conclusion that the Funks' theory was not accurate, George Johnson made a bold move. First, he went to Congressman Steiger and told him what the Funks had hired him to do. Then they invited Don Bowles to a secret meeting in a motel parking lot in 1970. Oh my goodness, the shadiness. If I'm ever invited to a secret meeting in a motel yeah. parking lot, I'm going to RSVP. No, thank you. If you are ever in 1970 and you find yourself invited to a secret meeting in a hotel, in a motel parking lot, excuse me. Yeah. I will not be attending. I'll send a gift. I have so many things to do that day. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's not what happened. George told Don everything, including that he had Don's bank records and another man had been hired to tap his phone. No big deal. Imagine getting that information. <laughs> yeah. It's like, we've been listening to you and we know how much money you spent at Target last yeah. week. Ooh, that'd be rough. Yeah, that would be rough. Now, after being told all of this, Don, of course, wanted to report it all in the paper, which just amplified the fight even more. The phone tampering was a big deal in his reporting. But the man who allegedly did the wiretapping died suddenly. Wow. What a coincidence. What a coinkydink there. Don Bowles was eventually assigned to cover the legislature, but he still wrote about the Funks. In June of 1976, Don Bowles was killed by a car bomb. Oh, that's horrific. Two men were charged in the bombing. They allegedly were hired by a businessman named Max Dunlap. Max Dunlap wanted Don killed as a favor to his friend, Kemper Marley. In March 1976, Don wrote a story about Kemper Marley that kept him from getting a seat on the State Racing Commission. The man who placed the bomb and Max Dunlap, who hired him, were found guilty. The man who detonated it was acquitted. Whoa. Crazy. Congressman Steiger dropped his fight against Emprise, who subsequently dropped a libel suit against the politician after they all sat down and met. Steiger said it was because of mounting legal bills. But I'm not so sure. <laughs> I was just good. Okay. Six. Also on our list at number six is the accidental assassination of Chicago Mayor Anton Cermak. On February 15, 1933, the mayor was with President-elect Franklin D. Roosevelt when someone took a shot at assassinating the incoming 32nd president of the United States. 
Roosevelt had just finished giving a speech out of the back of a Buick convertible in Miami when all this went down. You know those good old days when politicians would just speak out of the back of trucks? I do not remember those remember days. Remember those days, Ash? I do not. You remember that. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Don't be shy. You remember. <laughs> Roosevelt was being inaugurated at the height of the Great Depression, so it was an emotional time in the country, you mm, could say. Yeah. He got done talking, and six gunshots got fired from 25 feet away by a 32-year-old man. The wannabe assassin said he hated capitalism and thought rich people in power were oppressing the working man. The assassin's bullets missed Roosevelt, but one bullet hit Chicago mayor Anton Cermak. The mayor had been standing right next to the car where he and four others were shot. The Secret Service covered Roosevelt and shoved him into his car and just took off. Several police officers took the shooter to the ground. Five days later, on February 20th, the shooter pled guilty to attempted murder and was sentenced to 80 years. Wow. Meanwhile, in the hospital, it was touch and go with the mayor's condition. The mayor died of sepsis on March 6th, 19 days after being shot. That's so sad, too, yeah. because like his family probably thought he was going to survive after yeah. 19 days in the hospital. You're like, OK, we might get through this. And to die of sepsis, that's horrific. It's a really, Truly. really horrific way to die. The gunman's conviction was changed to murder. And on March 20th, just over a month after the shooting, he was electrocuted. His final words were, go ahead, push the button. Ooh, I hate that. Creepiest thing I've ever heard. Last words that are like that. Just so haunting. Yeah. Like, that's what you're going to say for the last time you speak. Yeah, it's like how John Wayne Gacy's last words were like, kiss my... Yeah, that was just... My behind. A turd It's move. Well, it's just like when people use their last words to be that, like... Cold. Yeah, it's just a lot for me. It truly is. But wow, these are crazy. I know some of these I didn't actually know about. What's weird to me is like so many people are getting acquitted that are like directly associated with these things. I was going to say that because that happened a few times. And also nothing that I was thinking of so far has been on this list. I think you might eat those words in just a second. Will I? Maybe. I'm kind of excited, but like, oh, also nervous. Love. It's been the subject of poems, novels, music, and film. It's also been the driving force behind some of the most horrendous crimes in history. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. Join me for season two of Criminal Couples and meet the lovers who took their passion to perilous lengths. Featuring standout episodes from female criminals, serial killers, solved murders, and crimes of passion, this season of Criminal Couples gets to the heart of what makes two turn to a life of murderous crime. Some couples were set off by revenge or greed. Others were fueled by sex and drugs. All acted in the name of love. Discover the darker side of desire in season two of the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Follow for free and tune in every Monday only on Spotify. Five. All right, let's jump back in with number five on our countdown of the most shocking U.S. political murders. Starting off the second half of our list, the death of Alexander Hamilton. Oh, you got it. I knew I you knew were going to say that. Oh, 
Hamilton immigrated to the U.S. from the Caribbean islands in 1773. By 1776, he had joined the Continental Army in the American Revolution, got General George Washington's attention, and helped draft the Constitution. No big deal. A little bit of an overachiever there. The greatest overachiever. <laughs> but then he ended up in a duel with the sitting vice president of the United States. I feel like I'm telling you everything you already know, Alina. It's taking everything in my body to not completely break out in song right now. So I'm just going <laughs> to I'm just going to sit here. I can feel that. I'm literally like Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> so in 1789, Hamilton became the first secretary of the Treasury under President Washington and created the country's financial system. Just more success. No big deal. He was in the room where it happened. He was. <laughs> Political parties also began to form. Hamilton was considered a leader of the Federalists, and he did not care for Aaron Burr, a Democratic Republican. So when Burr joined Thomas Jefferson's ticket as vice president in the 1796 election, Hamilton campaigned against him. Hamilton even said, I feel it is a religious duty to oppose his career. Oof, that's a burn. That's a lot right there. That's an Aaron burn. Your obedient servant. <laughs> How many more of those are there going to be? So many. So Jefferson and Burr lost that election, but came back for the 1800 election as running mates. Burr played dirty and made it public that Hamilton was critical of his own party's leader and president, John Adams, basically just trying to shut him up. And it worked. Jefferson and Burr won the election. But when it came time for re-election in 1804, Jefferson dropped Burr from the ticket. A very unhappy Burr then wanted to rebel by joining the Federalist Party. But there to stop him? Alexander Hamilton. You looked like you were about I'm, to burst into another to, song. I'm holding it in. Hamilton destroyed Burr's reputation and character. So Burr challenged Hamilton to a duel. Reminder, he is still the sitting veep. I was just going to say that. It's so wild. Can you imagine like that happening today? I mean, obviously not. No. <laughs> wild. So July 11th, 1804, the two met at 7 a.m. Didn't even want to sleep in that morning. No, of course not. They got stuff to do. And they met at some dueling grounds in New Jersey. This is also the same place Hamilton's son had died defending his father's honor just three years before. So much drama. I was about to sing that line, so I'm glad you said it. I got you. <laughs> there are varying stories about who was shot first, etc. But cut to Burr shooting Hamilton in the stomach. The bullet lodged into his spine. Eek. He was taken back to New York and died the next afternoon. Naturally, the country was livid. Hamilton had helped build the foundation of the whole nation. Burr was charged with murder, but went back to finish his term as VP. Then, instead of going quietly... He tried to fight back. I like that he was like, yep, yeah, I got it. I'm a murderer. Um, I just got to finish that real quick. And they were like, okay, go ahead. Yeah, you can just finish that out real quick. In February 1807, Burr was arrested in Louisiana for treason. That September, he was acquitted on a technicality. Dang. As is the theme of this list. Dang. The general public still considered him a traitor. He spent some time in hiding in Europe, then lived in New York, where he died in 1836. It's a great musical. <laughs> Four. Landing at number four this week is Harvey Milk. After moving to San Francisco in late 1972, Harvey Milk's camera store in the heart of the gay community became a popular place, and Harvey became a popular figure in the neighborhood. 
While his first run at politics didn't pan out, he came out of it even more influential and ran again. But sadly, of course, with any civil rights movement comes conflict. Harvey Milk was finally elected to the San Francisco Board of Supervisors in 1977. The next year, in 1978, Harvey successfully helped push through an ordinance with the city council that protected gay people from being fired from their jobs. And he wasn't just fighting the fight for the LGBTQIA community. Harvey fought for working mothers, low-cost housing, tax code reform, and neighborhood safety, all of which made him an extremely well-liked and productive supervisor. Harvey also helped defeat Proposition 6 in California, which would have banned gays and lesbians from being teachers. Which, that's just so heinous How to think is that about. even a thing? All of that success was constantly countered by the amount of hate and anger towards the LGBTQIA community, and Harvey specifically. Harvey received death threats daily and knew something bad could happen. I can't believe that that's like how you have to live that way. Yeah. When you're just like trying to fight for people to be equal. It's insane to me. I don't even have words sometimes. And that it's still a thing. He had taped recorded versions of his will that stated, quote, to be read in the event of my assassination. The fact that somebody has to do that. That's what he lived with every single day. You're so terrified. Like, you just keep that. That's what's crazy. Like, he kept fighting for it. What a stand up dude. On one of the tapes, he said, quote, if a bullet should enter my brain, let that bullet destroy every closet door. Which oh, just gave me I full love, body chills. I love that. On November 27th, 1978, his predictions came to fruition when disgruntled former city supervisor Dan White assassinated Harvey and San Francisco Mayor George Moscone. Dan White avoided City Hall metal detectors by sneaking through a basement window. Oh, like that's how it happened too? Yeah. Just like a silly little thing like, like a that. loophole there. He was acquitted of murder charges and sentenced to less than eight years in prison on May 21st, 1979. His attorney argued the now infamous Twinkie defense, claiming Dan White ate too much junk food and it affected him enough that he couldn't be held responsible for his actions. I'm leaving. Real I'm life. walking out of the door Real right life. now. I've called an Uber. It's picking me up. Bye. Out of here. Me too. And I've never shot a man. The Twinkie defense. Like, I love ice cream. I love junk food. Never going to shoot anybody about it. I can house a sleeve of Oreos at night before going to bed. And all it gives me is crazy vivid dreams. Thank you. That's it. Like, come on. I've also seen that happen. You have. The verdict ignited the White Knight riots in the city. There are now buildings, statues, and days named for Harvey Milk. Thank goodness. There should be. He was also posthumously awarded the Medal of Freedom from President Barack Obama, who praised Milk's visionary courage and conviction in fighting discrimination. Three. Number three on our countdown of the most shocking U.S. political murders is Abraham Lincoln. The 16th president of the United States was sitting in the balcony of Ford's Theater watching a play when he was famously shot on the night of April 14, 1865, making him the first U.S. president to be assassinated while in office. I was waiting for this one. I bet you were. The 19th century was filled with dramatic crimes, but this was clearly far and away the most shocking. That night, John Wilkes Booth stepped into the presidential box and shot Lincoln in the head. 
Lincoln slumped forward and Booth dropped the gun and jumped from the balcony, breaking his leg when he landed. Dummy. Like, good. You should break your leg after shooting someone. (laughs) Yeah. Booth escaped out the back door of the theater and took off on a horse. Wow. A sign of the times. Truly. (laughs) Meanwhile, Lincoln was rushed to a house across the street. Also a sign of the times. Yes. The bullet was lodged behind his right eye. Doctors tried to save him, but nine hours later, Lincoln died. Booth's original plan was to kidnap Lincoln and hold him hostage until all Confederate prisoners were released. He also hated that Lincoln talked about working on securing voting rights for Black Americans because he was a terrible human. I was going to say Booth sounds so great. Yeah, so awesome. And by great, I mean the worst. What sometimes gets missed in the story is the attempted murder of Lincoln's Secretary of State that happened at the same time. William Henry Seward was at home when a man cut his throat, but Seward survived. I love how that one just gets like pushed off to the side. Like a man got his throat cut. At home. What is it? The Secretary of State got his throat cut. At home. And we're like, oh, a little known fact about that night. (laughs) Like That's insane. Now, after a manhunt on April 26th, 1865, John Wilkes Booth was found hiding in a barn near Bowling Green, Virginia. He was shot and killed. Four co-conspirators were also hanged that July. That was one of the ones I was waiting for, for sure. Yeah, definitely. There's still one that's hanging out there that I have a feeling is number one. I know. I feel like I got three of like the things you're looking for. Yeah, you really did. The fact that you got Alexander Hamilton. I knew that was going to be a, a large source of contention. Can I should have talked to the gods on the side <laughs> and been like, listen, it's going to be a bad week for me if I get this. So. It'll be a problem. <laughs> you know what? The biggest problem for me was holding in every lyric that I wanted to scream into this microphone, but I did it for you guys. Yeah, I could I want see you, to know that. you bursting at the seems oh yeah i was turning red but let's see what's coming up next all right i I got one you got one let's do it two We're down to the final two spots on our countdown of the most shocking U.S. political murders. At number two is California Congressman Leo Ryan. In the fall of 1978, Leo Ryan traveled to Guyana to check out Jonestown, where members of the People's Temple had settled under the control of Jim Jones. Many members were from the San Francisco area, and many family and friends of them were calling him with major concerns about abuses happening there. Leo Ryan never came back alive. Congressman Ryan took a delegation of government officials and reporters to Guyana in November 1978. The group met with the People's Temple leader, Jim Jones, and talked with some followers. Some of these members wanted to leave with the congressman. This obviously didn't make Jim Jones happy. Not wanting to leave behind anyone who wanted to leave, Ryan ordered a second plane and eventually made their way back to the airstrip. But as the congressman's plane was about to leave, a truck with armed men from Jonestown showed up and started shooting. One cult member, Larry Layton, was one of the shooters. Leo Ryan, three members of the media, and a defector from the People's Temple were killed. Back in Jonestown compound, Jim Jones then ordered his followers to drink a fruit drink that was apparently laced with cyanide. He told them the delegation and the shooting at the airstrip would bring harm to the congregation. More than 900 members, including more than 200 children, died after drinking the fruit drink. Jones took his own life with a shotgun. 
Once the FBI was able to piece together all of the events, People's Temple member Larry Layton, who was one of the shooters we mentioned, was charged, convicted, and sentenced to life in prison. He was the only person to face consequences for the events. That's so nuts that only one, like, this one many person. people died and one person faces consequences. It's 900 people drank that drink and died a horrific, dying by cyanide is not just dying and being like, okay, good night. Right. Like these it's people, violent. these children, they suffered. And then and Jim Jones shoots himself to death. Right. Drink the fruit drink, sir. Yeah, if everybody else is. Ugh. So sad. One. And that brings us to number one on our countdown of the top 10 most shocking U.S. political murders, President John F. Kennedy. There it is. JFK served as the 35th president of the United States from January 1961 until his assassination on November 22, 1963. Not only was it the murder of a sitting U.S. president, it was very public, very graphic, and sparked conspiracy theories that still get debated today. At the time, Kennedy was expected to announce, but had yet to actually say, that he was running for re-election. He was on a pretty aggressive trip around the U.S., touting natural resources and conservation efforts, but also slyly testing the waters with hot topics that he could possibly use in his re-election campaign. Before getting to Texas, he knew that there were some extremists that were causing political tensions in the state that would make themselves known, but he went anyway. People lined the streets of Dallas to see JFK, at about 12.30 p.m., as his convertible rounded the corner passing the Texas School Book Depository, gunfire rang out. Kennedy was shot in the neck and head. He slumped over toward First Lady Jackie Kennedy. All of it was caught on camera, film that has been studied for decades, the Sapruder film especially. The president was rushed to Parkland Memorial Hospital, but died at 1 p.m. At 1.15 p.m., the man who shot Kennedy, Lee Harvey Oswald, also shot and killed a Dallas patrolman. About an hour later, Oswald was finally arrested. Vice President Lyndon B. Johnson took the oath of office at 2.38 p.m. Within a two-hour time span, all of that took place. I can't imagine, like, being alive for this time and watching this play out on television. That's the thing. It's one of those things that everybody remembers where they were when yeah. they saw this. It must have been wild. And it must have just been, I mean, obviously, like we know it was so scary for the American people watching. It's what we were saying in the beginning exactly. of this whole thing. It's just so chaotic and you just don't know what's going to happen You're next. watching the president be murdered on national television. It's insane. It truly is. So two days later, November 24th, Lee Harvey Oswald was transferred from Dallas police headquarters to the county jail. TV cameras were rolling live on the move when Jack Ruby, a local nightclub owner, shot Oswald at point-blank rage. Oswald died at Parkland Hospital. How strange, too, that they both died at the same hospital. Yeah, it's Just wild. creepy. The day after Oswald was killed, JFK was laid to rest in Arlington National Cemetery, and millions watched it on television. A week after the president was killed, an official investigation was launched. The President's Commission of the Assassination of President Kennedy, known as the Warren Commission, spent about a year investigating the murder. According to the Warren Commission, Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. He fired three bullets from a sixth floor window of the book depository. He had a personal history that supported a motive. 
And as one journalist put it, Oswald didn't hate Kennedy. Quote, what he did hate was the system and what Kennedy stood for. He despised America. He despised capitalism. When he eventually had the opportunity to strike against Kennedy, it was that symbol of the system he was going after. A 2017 poll by 538 found that only 33% of Americans believe Oswald acted alone. And there are countless conspiracy theories that live on. The Grassy Knoll, the Umbrella Man, mob connections, it was an inside job. Now, the best way to hear a lot of those conspiracy theories, check out our Crime Countdown episode on the top 10 JFK assassination theories from November of 2020. I was going to say that. I was like, hey, you know, we did an episode on that. Just a little (laughs) plug. Now, there's still an ongoing fight to get classified documents from the government about the assassination. I just, I don't know. I hope I'm still alive for that. (laughs) If we ever get those classified documents, I would love just to see what's held within those. Right? And it's also just crazy to think that the vice president just immediately had to be sworn in as president. Like, you don't think of that when no. you're voting for, like, you think of it, you're like, this person also has to run the country. Of course. But it becomes very real when something like this happens, that it's just like, boop, it's happening now. And you're just, I'm sure as the vice president, you're prepared for that to a degree, but you're never actually prepared you're for that. You're hoping it never has to be activated. Exactly. <laughs> That's the thing. Well, I would say that was number one. Yeah, I can't think of what else would have been. I Yeah, that one I would definitely place at number one. But immediately I thought of Hamilton. I thought of JFK. I thought of Lincoln. I thought of Harvey Milk. And a few of the other ones were kind of new to me. I didn't even know about them. Same here. It was a really interesting list and interesting to go through. Well done, Parcast Research Gods. I know, we can't get you in trouble this week. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another great episode. Remember to follow Crime Countdown on Spotify to get a brand new episode delivered every week. You can find all episodes of Crime Countdown and all other podcast shows for free on Spotify. And if you like this show, follow at Parcast on Facebook and Instagram and at Parcast Network on Twitter. And if you like us, which I hope you do because you made it this far, you can follow us on Morbid. You can listen anywhere you listen to podcasts or you can follow us on Instagram at Morbid Podcast or on Twitter at a Morbid Podcast. And keep it weird until Monday. Crime Countdown is executive produced by Max Cutler and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It was created by Max Cutler. Sound design by Kristen Acevedo with associate sound design by Kevin McAlpine. Fact checking by Cara Mackerlein. Research by Jay Cahio. It's produced by John Cohen, Kristen Acevedo, and Jonathan Ratliff. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro. We're your hosts, Ash Kelly and Elena Urquhart. It's been said that love is a many-splendored thing. That is, until it's not. In season two of Criminal Couples, discover true stories of couples who turned their love lives into a life of crime. Lies and deceit are just the beginning. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Catch new episodes every Monday, free and only on Spotify. 